Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. The book of Ephesians is laid out in a very simple format. You have the gospel, which comprises chapters 1 through 3. There's no commands, no imperatives. Paul is explaining for us what Jesus has done for us in redemptive history, in his life on uh, this earth. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6 is all law. How do we respond to the good news of the gospel? And in these chapters, Paul lays out these imperatives and these commands of how we should respond in light of this gospel message. And so chapter 4 is beginning this law of gratitude section. We see Paul having this similar structure in many of his epistles. Romans, for example, is law, gospel, law. We're convicted of our sin and misery through the law. Then he lays out the gospel. And then, after we hear the gospel, we are told how we should live in light of that gospel. As we'll uh, soon see, the Heidelberg Catechism follows this basic paradigm that we see in many of Paul's epistles. So Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. The Apostle Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he, al- he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until all attain, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. May the Lord write this word upon our hearts uh, this morning. You also see in your order of worship the first Lord's Day in our Heidelberg Catechism. We won't be directly considering this as today I'm just going to be introducing the Catechism and we'll focus our attention more on this Lord's Day next week. But I'd still like us to recite question and answer one and two from Lord's Day one. I will read the question if you please respond by reciting the answer. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, 
and has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, also assures me of his eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly clean and ready from now on to live for him. Question two asks, how many things must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three, first, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from my sins and misery. Third, how I am deliverance. Well, what comes to mind when you think or hear of the word catechism? This is one of those questions that's not necessarily rhetorical. What comes to mind when you hear the word catechism? Form structure. Memorization. Good, and I think if you ask the normal person in the street, it, the word catechism probably has a negative connotation for most people. On the one hand, people might not know what it means, younger generations, or if they have heard of it, it probably reminds them of something dull, boring, negative, yeah, something you have to memorize. You know, I grew up in a very Roman Catholic area of the Midwest, and uh, similar connotations as Cheryl. I went to a public school in rural Midwest, and I was one of only a couple of kids who weren't Catholic. And every Tuesday afternoon, these kids would be released for Catholic catechism. So it would be me and like two other kids who would be having study hall on Tuesday afternoons. And so when I thought of catechism growing up, I just thought of the Roman Catholic Church. And based on the reports I got from my classmates, it wasn't a very exciting time. And so this leads to the question of why are we doing a catechism service? Why are we taking the time on, on Sundays to look at scripture through the lens of a catechism in a place like Gig Harbor, Washington? It's a good question. Well, the word catechism simply means instruction. It's actually, uh, the, the Greek word for catechism is used on a number of occasions in the New Testament. For instance, in Acts 18, we, are, we learn that Apollos was instructed in the way of the Lord. And the word that's used there is katecheo. It's instruction. And so in one sense, you can think of a catechism as an instructor, a teacher. The Heidelberg Catechism is simply a teacher or instructor of the word of God. And yes, it's a helpful, wise instructor, but it's an infallible. It's not an infallible, excuse me or an errant instructor, just like I'm not an infallible or an errant instructor or any other pastor since Christ and his apostles are infallible or inerrant. And this, this catechism, which probably is of no surprise to you, was written in the city of Heidelberg in 1563, which was a time of, of, of many confessions. The Reformation was a confessional era where many of uh, the, the different groups of the Reformation were trying to define themselves 
um, in light of the, the Western uh, Catholic Church. And in 16th, uh, 1563, this catechism was written in the city of Heidelberg. And it was originally written in German, but then it was quickly translated into many different languages. It was split up into 52 Lord's Days, so the, the churches could consider a section of it each Sunday. It was adopted by many synods across Europe and used in the churches. It has had a long, long history with the Dutch Reformed churches, which is where our denomination uh, uh, comes from. And one author that I read this week says that it's the fourth most widely circulated document in the last 500 years. It's quite amazing. Any guesses on what is ahead of the Heidelberg Catechism? The Bible? Not the Belgian Confession. No. Not the Westminster. So what, what documents are ahead the Heidelberg Catechism in terms of the most circulated document? It's uh, John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress, this is number two, and number three was Thomas Akempis's The Imitation of Christ. And then number four was the Heidelberg Catechism. So this is a beloved document. It's a document that has, is quite far-reaching, which we might not really con uh, have, have considered before. But again, coming back to that question, why? Why are we bothering to take time to study, to reflect upon this catechism as a means of instruction in the Word of God. Well, today I'd like to briefly focus our minds and hearts on the fact that the Heidelberg Catechism is a gift from our ascended Savior. The Heidelberg Catechism is a gift from our ascended Savior. And we see this in Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, which I read earlier. So the catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, is a gift from our ascended Savior. Now, if you still have your Bibles open to Ephesians 4, you'll see in verse 8, Paul quotes Psalm 68. And he applies it to Christ's ascension into heaven. Christ ascended into heaven. We hear about this in Acts 1, Luke 24. He left this earth bodily and is seated at the right hand of, of, of the Father in, in the heavenly places. But what, what does Christ do after he ascends into heaven? according to this passage. Yes. He goes up and gifts come down. In the book of Acts, what is the biggest gift that we see coming down? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit Pentecost. But in this passage, what are the gifts that Christ sends down upon his church? Yes, very good. Verse 11. And he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, Shepherds and teachers. We might not always, that, that might not be the first thing we think of when we think about the gifts that Christ sends down upon his church in this time when he's bodily absent. Now, apostles and prophets, these are extraordinary offices, and, and thus they don't exist today. And if you have met an apostle or prophet, they were not a real apostle or prophet. That was a, unique to the first century. And after the close of the apostolic era, there are no more apostles and prophets. And so the three offices that are normative today are evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Now, what, what's an evangelist in today's, today's world? A missionary. Technically, I'm an evangelist because this is a mission work. And, um, and so I'm a domestic missionary. 
And then you have shepherds and, and teachers. And there's been some debate as to what these offices refer to in the original language and reflected even in, in our translation. It's governed by one article, so some people think that it's referring to the same office. So you could put a hyphen there, shepherd, shepherd teachers. The view of like St. Augustine, indicating that pastors both are to shepherd care for, for their people, but also instruct and teach in the word of God. Others think that these are overlapping offices, but in some sense, distinctive offices. Shepherds would be more uh, those individuals who are given to pastoral ministry as their uh, full-time vocation, and other and teachers are pastors who are devoted to instructing and raising up pastors. So you could think of in today's world professors, seminary professors. Whichever option you want to go with, they're, they're, at the very least, they're referring to pastors. Pastors who are called to instruct in the word of God. In fact, all of these offices are, their main duty is the ministry of the word. The preaching, teaching, proclamation of the word, whether it's apostle, a prophet, an evangelist, or a shepherd and a teacher. Now in verse 12, we see that these, three, these offices were given for the purpose of doing three things. To equip the saints. Second, to build up the body of, or, or second, to, to do the work of the ministry. Hence the word ministers. Third, to build up the body of Christ. Now, if you have the ESV or another translation, it, it may, your translation may imply that the offices in verse 11 are equipping the saints and the saints are doing the work of the ministry. There's a, there's a decision that translators have to make in terms of how do we treat these three prepositional phrases. All of these, all of these phrases begin with a preposition and you have to make a decision. What relationship do these three phrases have? I think the best grammatical option is to see these three phrases in verse 12 as being parallel to one another. Okay, equipping the saints, doing the work of the ministry, building up the body. They're parallel to one another, and they're connected then to verse 11. So the offices in verse 11 are doing these three things. But then if you continue down in, in, in Ephesians 4, you'll see in, the great goal or telos of these offices the great purpose for Christ giving these offices to the church is found in verses 14 and 15. So verse 14 says, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and deceitful schemes, or by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Interesting imagery that Paul gives. It may be reflecting upon his his own, his own past, as he himself was shipwrecked. Think about the image of being uh, tossed to and fro during a storm at sea. It really doesn't get much worse than that, does it? What Paul's saying here is the Christian who's not connected to these offices is in danger of, ha of this happening to them. When you're not connected to these offices, these gifts of Christ, you're in danger of being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. That's what Paul's saying. And therefore, these offices have been given to protect the church from the craftiness of deceitful schemes. 
But then put positively, in verse 15, Paul says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Thus these offices were given to build up the, the church in truth, in love, so that they themselves, in terms of their general office as believers, can speak the truth to one another in love. So that the whole church can grow up into Christ. I mean, that is the great goal of the Christian life, is it not? Growing up into our head who is Christ. Being conformed more and more into his image and likeness. That is the great goal of the Christian life. The great goal of the church and why we meet together each Lord's Day is we are to grow more and more into conformity of Christ. So Paul says that our ascended Savior during this time in which he's bodily absent has given these, these offices as gifts. And as they perform the ministry of the word, the church is protected from errant teaching and are built up into Christ. That's what Paul's saying here. Well, coming back to our Heidelberg Catechism. This catechism was a, a document that was written in 1563 in the city of Heidelberg by two individuals a pastor and a teacher. So you can think of the two offices that Paul speaks of here. Casper uh, Olivianus was a pastor, and uh, Zacharias Ursinus was the teacher, uh, a seminary professor, as it were, at the University of Heidelberg. And these two individuals were the main authors of our catechism. Furthermore, this catechism, after it was written, was adopted by many pastors and elders and churches and denominations throughout the ages. In fact, our own denomination, our own federation, the URCNA, has adopted this catechism as a faithful articulation of the truth of the Word of God. And so, insofar as this document is the product of a pastor and a teacher, and has been adopted by many pastors, elders, teachers, denominations throughout the ages, we can then say that this document is a gift from our ascended Savior. This document is a gift from our ascended Savior. In order to protect us from errant teaching, the craftiness of deceitful schemes, so that we're not tossed to and fro by the, by the uh, winds of, of false doctrine, and so that we might be built up into Christ, that we might be equipped to speak the truth in love. Well, most of you probably can um, think of individuals in your life uh, whereby when you receive a gift from them, it reflects that person's personality. And oftentimes this happens, right? You can look at a gift that someone gives you, and it, it's very unique to that person. As I mentioned before, we were in Minnesota uh, two weeks ago for my grandma's funeral. My siblings and I were reflecting around that time, memories we had with, with our grandma. And one thing that my grandma always did for a birthday is you know, she would give us money or some gift, but then she always would include this gift bag with random things from her house. She'd go through her cupboard, go through her closet, and she'd just put things in there. Think of popcorn, think of a can of pop, an orange. She would always get these winnings from the casino or elsewhere, and we'd dump it in the gift bag. Every birthday had this gift bag of random things, her decluttering of the house. It reflected my grandma. 
we, you all can probably think of individuals in your life where you can almost predict the type of gift they're going to give you. It reflects their personality. Well, if the Heidelberg Catechism is a gift from our ascended Savior, then we should expect that it reflects the heart of Christ for his people. We should expect that this document reflects the character of Christ. And we actually see that it does. It, it does this in, in a number of different ways. Anyone have any ideas of how this document reflects the character of Christ? Comforting. Yeah, that's the first question answer, is it not? Well, one that I had in mind is uh, the, the, this catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, reflects the personal nature of Jesus' ministry. You know, Hebrews 4.15 uh, says that our high priest is able to sympathize with us in our weakness. Jesus is able to sympathize with you particularly and personally with whatever weakness, trial, tribulation you're going through. Jesus' ministry on our behalf is personal. And we see, one thing that we see, one great feature of this catechism is that it's a very personal document. Ursinus, Olivianus, they deliberately chose to use the first person pronoun. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own. Immediately wraps you into it. You know, other great catechisms, for example, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, great document, but it doesn't have this personal element to it. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But throughout this document, you'll see that it uses these first-person pronouns and it wraps you into it. The very personal document reflects the personal nature of Jesus' ministry on our behalf. Well, another feature of this catechism is, uh, is that the, the Heidelberg Catechism reflects Jesus' concern for our practical day-to-day lives. Again, Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus sympathizes with us in our weaknesses, our ordinary weaknesses. The weaknesses we experience Monday through Saturday. Weaknesses that maybe nobody else knows about. Jesus cares about the practicalities of our lives. And the Heidelberg Catechism reflects this practical nature. Throughout this document, it will take these doctrines and apply them to our lives. And the questions themselves betray its practical character. For example, we'll read in question 45, how does the resurrection of Christ benefit you? They could have asked, what do you understand by the resurrection of Christ? Instead, it asks, how does it benefit you? How does it impact your day-to-day life? Or we read in question 52, how does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? Again, what relevance is it to you and your Christian faith and life? Or question 57, how does the resurrection of the body again comfort you? Go on and on. We could list questions where the catechism is making these doctrines practical for us. The Heidelberg Catechism also reflects Jesus' concern for precise doctrine. Paul himself says that if anyone comes to you with a different gospel, that is to say, if, if someone seeks to change the gospel, let him be anathema. As we heard from 2 Peter 3, that 
Some of the scriptures are difficult to understand, and there are those people in every age who seek to twist those scriptures to destabilize us in our Christian faith. And therefore, precision matters. We are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the catechism, as it reflects this this, uh, characteristic of Christ, also will be very precise at times. For instance, when it's teaching about the ascension of Christ and the two natures of Christ and how that relates to to Jesus' ascension. Jesus in Luke 24 and Acts 1 ascends to heaven bodily. But in Matthew 28, he says, I will be with you to the end of the age. So in one sense, we know Christ is absent bodily. He left this earth, but yet in another sense, he says he's with us always. And so if the human nature of Christ is in heaven, but if, if his divine nature is everywhere present, does that mean we have two Christs? One that's sort of flying around on a, on a broomstick, the other one who's locally in heaven? How do we understand the two natures of Christ in this age? How does that relate to the Lord's Supper? When we say that we eat the crucified body and shed blood of Christ, does that mean the human nature of Christ is coming down? Does it mean that just the divine nature is present? How do we understand that? And the catechism gives us a very precise and concise answer to some of these very complex issues that the church has had to deal with in every age. And lastly, we see that the Heidelberg Catechism reflects Jesus' concern for unity. In John 17, Jesus prays that his people, not only his disciples, but all Christians, everyone who will believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he prays that they would be one. He prays that they would be one. And this catechism is is trying to do not something new, but rather recover and restore a very ancient practice. All the way at the very, really at the very beginning of the early church, uh, the Christian church developed the practice of instructing its young people and new converts by using four different forms. So they would, their, you could say their new members class, as it were, in the very early church, would be an instruction upon the Apostles' Creed, upon uh, the Lord's Prayer, the Sacraments, and the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments. If you look at the Heidelberg Catechism, it includes all four of those forms. The Apostles' Creed, the Sacraments, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. And so the Catechism is actually trying to preserve the best of what's come before it and use this long, tried and true tradition of instructing the people of God in these basic guides to the Christian faith. And so, again, returning back to that question of why do we study the Heidelberg Catechism? Well, based on Ephesians 4, we can, uh, we can see that this document is a gift from our ascended Savior, and it reflects the heart of Christ in some wonderful, wonderful ways for us as his people. And so I look forward, as we dive in, and hopefully next week dive into that first question and answer, which is a wonderful question and answer, I look forward to uh, continuing to develop and unpack some of these, these themes that we have looked at today. Any questions?